What a text for Father's Day, right? Who planned this one? It wasn't me this time. It really wasn't. It was Mike. Um, (laughs) I got you, boo. All right. Hey, before we jump into Habakkuk, I've got a couple things I want you guys to be aware of and some things I want you to be praying for. The first is that Pastor Brad is officially on sabbatical. Okay, that means uh, for the next month, he's out of pocket. He will not be here. He's not going to teach. He's not going to pick up your phone calls. He's not going to answer your emails. He is out. He is away. He is resting. He is reconnecting. He is studying. He is praying. Leadership is hard. And so uh, I'm grateful that our church allows its leaders to take seasons uh, to rest and to break from the normal routine. All right. So uh, can we commit as a church family to pray for Pastor Brad while he is out this next month? Uh, It's been a heavy season for him before he even got into it. Uh, And I think like the second day of his sabbatical, his brother-in-law had a heart attack. So uh, we got some things we can be praying for, all right? Now, second thing is uh, tomorrow, our middle school students are heading to camp. Now, uh, I worked at a camp in various capacities for 13 years. I love camp. I think it is one of the most powerful things available to kids, And so tomorrow, Pastor Lee and some of our leaders and middle school students are heading to camp for the week, and I have seen hundreds of students make decisions to follow Jesus at camp. I have seen decisions made that have literally impacted families and rippled for generations at camp. Like, that is the power of what our students are going to experience this coming week, and I think we should be praying for them as well. Amen? So this week, we are committing to pray for Brad while he steps out, and we are praying for our middle school students, for Pastor Lee and our leaders as they get away for a week at camp that I hope they can hear directly from God, that they will make uh, life-altering decisions, that they will come back different people excited uh, for what is happening here in Shelbyville, all right? Now, Habakkuk is one of those books where you're kind of like, where does this fit in? Right? You open the book of Genesis and you look at it and it says, in the beginning. And you're like, I know where this starts. Right? Habakkuk, you're like, yes. Right? So in order for us to get into Habakkuk and kind of walk through what is going on in Habakkuk, I think it's important we kind of walk through how they get to this point in history. Now, Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. So if you have a paper Bible in you, open it up. There are two halves to it. They're not really half because the Old Testament's massive and the New Testament not so much, right? But we have two different breaks. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is really kind of the story of the people of Israel, but the entire Bible is the storyline of God. And so Habakkuk fits into this story in some way, shape, or form, and so we need to walk through how we get there. So, in the beginning, I'm not going to start a creation, I'll start a chapter later. Okay, Abraham, (laughs) man named Abram, has an experience with God, he encounters God, and God actually changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude, which was funny because Abraham was like a hundred and had no kids. And God makes this promise with Abraham where he says, I am going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. 
I don't know many hundred-year-olds that are doing that. But God says, I'll make it happen. And bigger than that, he says, I'm going to give you a promised land. And so God and Abraham uh, have this covenant. The crazy thing, though, is in the Old Testament, when a covenant was made, if a covenant was between you and somebody else, you walked together uh, through dead birds. Okay, creepy, I'm aware, right? But you would walk through these birds, and it was a covenant between you and the other person. This covenant, God is the only one who takes that walk, meaning it's fully dependent on God alone, and Abraham, realistically, is along for the ride. So Abraham ends up having some kids, right? Abraham has seven kids, and one of those kids is a guy named Isaac who has some sons. We're introduced to a guy named Jacob. Now Jacob, similar to Abraham, has an experience, an interaction, a run-in with God. They wrestle, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Now Israel has 12 sons, and to say that they did not get along would be an understatement. Uh, They sold one of their brothers into slavery. I don't think any of us have done that. (laughs) It's a bad day, right? So Joseph ends up in slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and once he gets to Egypt, he actually starts gaining some power. He's finding favor with Pharaoh and the leaders in Egypt, and so Joseph is growing in his power and his influence in Egypt, and he gets to the point where he is one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt, and while this is happening, a famine strikes the land, and where Israel, his father, and all of his brothers are at, they're looking for food, so they make their way to Egypt because they hear that there's stockpiles there. So they arrive to Egypt, where Joseph is. They end up reconciling with their brother, and he actually says, hey, you guys should just settle here with me. And so the 12 uh, sons and Israel all settle in Egypt, and it says that they were very fruitful and they multiplied, right? They were bunnies, and they had a lot of babies. So many babies, okay? They get to the point where there are so many Israelites that they are actually uncomfortably uh, gaining momentum to where Egypt says, you know what, we have to do something about this, right? They're going to outgrow us. They're not going to submit to us. And so uh, we're actually going to enslave them. And this goes on for 400 years. Now, while this is taking place, a baby named Moses is born, and he ends up growing up in Pharaoh's home. He sees the injustice that's taken place, and he ends up being called by God to help set the people free. And so Moses uh, raises up as a leader. He takes the people of Israel. He gets them out of Egypt in spectacular fashion. God is dropping plagues on everything. Frogs are going everywhere. It's nutty, right? The people get out into the wilderness, and they think, man, we're finally free except we're in the woods and we have nothing to eat and they start to grumble and complain and God says, here's the deal. I just set you free. We're gonna start walking in circles for 40 years until you figure out that I'm good. And it's in the wilderness that God gives the people a new covenant. He gives them the law, which was 613 laws. They were rules and regulations for how you were to interact with each other and how you were to interact with God. And this is what is referred to as the old covenant. So the people of Israel are in the wilderness and they're trying to find this promised land that Abraham was told he was going to get. 
And they're wandering and wandering and wandering. And eventually, uh, Moses gets so old, he's like, I can't do this anymore. So Moses passes the baton on to Joshua. Moses dies. Joshua ends up leading the people into the promised land. Now, they arrive in the promised land and they actually divide up this land amongst all 12 of the sons of Israel, right? They become the 12 tribes and they have dedicated lands. So they're finally in this place that they were promised. And things were good until they started doing their own thing again. You're going to notice this trend of this cycle where things are really good and then things are really bad and they cry out and God saves them and things are really good and then they're really bad and God saves them and we go in this cycle over and over and over again. And so in Joshua, we see them get the promised land and then we get into the book of Judges. And over and over again, we were told that they were evil in the Lord's sight, that they literally were doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. Now, there's a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament, and even into the New Testament, and it's that God opposes pride, and that he asks his people to be humble and obedient. And over and over and over again, we see the pride rise in them, and then it gets struck down out of them. We make our way into the book of Samuel, where we are introduced to Samuel, and he's a prophet. And the people of Israel continue looking at all the other nations that are around them, and they say, hey, all these other nations have a king, we just have God, that's not good enough, we want a king. So they go to Samuel, and Samuel goes to God on their behalf and says, hey, the people want a king. And God says, fine, we'll give them a king. And he puts into place a man by the name of Saul. Saul was a horrible king. Right? If God looked for somebody who was humble and obedient, Saul was the opposite of this. Saul was proud. He would never take ownership of his failures. And so while Saul is ruling He's just making a mess of things. And God says, all right, let's raise up somebody different. And so he raises up a little shepherd boy by the name of David. So Saul is on the throne and David is being raised up. Throws a couple rocks at a giant man. He falls down. Everybody thinks that he is awesome. Here's the deal. David was not awesome. David was nothing. He didn't deserve to be a king, but God had favor on him because of his faith because of his humility and his obedience. And so we see Saul ends up passing away and David becomes king and he takes over and things are good with David. In fact, the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. Until David sees a fine woman on top of another building bathing and he says, I want that. So David takes another man's wife he sleeps with her, he gets her pregnant, and when he finds out she's pregnant, he says, "Uh uh-oh, her husband is at war, people are going to know that something happened, and so he actually has her husband killed so that he can marry her and cover up what he did. It says that David was confronted with his actions, with his sins, and he actually was very repentant of it. 
And so we see in David's life, you'll see throughout the Psalms, there are times that he is like, God, you are so close right now. And then you turn the page and he's like, God, where are you? And this dude is back and forth and back and forth. And we're all like, amen, that's me too. Now David continues to reign and things go up and things go down. And eventually he gets old and the crown gets passed to Solomon, his son. Now at this point, Israel is in their golden age. Solomon was actually able to build the temple and this is where heaven meets earth. Right? Back in Genesis, God tells Abraham, you are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and you are going to have a promised land. And they waited a thousand years to see this come to fruition. And so finally... The temple is built, heaven meets earth, there is peace, they are well, things are awesome. They're a united kingdom, all 12 of the tribes, they're one big happy family. Until Solomon starts marrying the daughters of other kings because he wanted political uh, Assets. He wanted to have relationships with other kingdoms in case things were going to happen. And so with these new wives, hundreds of them, came their gods and the worship of their gods. And the worship of these gods went into the nation of Israel. And the people started worshiping all of these false gods. We see that Solomon became incredibly wealthy, filthy rich. He started enslaving people so that they could build whatever he wanted we're seeing the downfall of Solomon. After Solomon dies, this nation that once was united, it ends up splitting into two. You have this northern kingdom that's keeping the name Israel, and you have this southern kingdom that takes the name Judah. You've got Israel and Judah, and Israel was made up of two tribes, and Judah was made up of ten tribes. Jerusalem was down In Judah, Samaria was up in Israel. And so if you really want to start digging into like the context for where Habakkuk takes place, you can start reading in 2 Kings chapter 21. I'm going to briefly overview that as well. Now here's the deal. We need to keep in perspective, right? We read the Bible, but the reality is that the Bible is the written history of the people of Israel for the people of Israel. And so we read it and we think, man, Israel was this awesome mega power. They were huge. They were super. Here's the deal. Israel was like New Hampshire. Not that impressive. Okay? You could probably beat them with a stick. Right? And the reason that they were this way is because all of their power came from God. Like, if you look at the stories of what takes place, nothing about them is impressive. What's impressive is how God delivers them and how God shows up, right? If God opposes pride, why would he have a massive empire that could puff themselves up? Instead, he says, you guys are puny. Look at what I can do for you. Look at how I love you and how I deliver you and how I take care of you. And it's important to kind of know, like, they really were this tiny little thing. Now while they're kind of New Hampshire in the United States, you've got uh, Assyria, which they're the king of the hill at this point in history, but they're starting to decline, okay? Vince, I'm doing you proud. I'm giving you a history lesson, right? 
You've got the Assyrians. They're kings of the hill. They're on the decline. You've got Babylon. They are big, bad, brutal. They are killing everyone enslaving everyone that they can. They are on the rise. And then we have our old friends, Egypt. They too are kind of a superpower, but they also are in the decline. And so you see Egypt and Assyria starting to tag team in an attempt to try and kind of hold Babylon at bay. So there's like massive war going on and you got New Hampshire just chilling right in the middle of it, okay? Now what we see over and over again in the Old Testament is that the people mess up, they cry out, God saves and delivers, they do well for a while, and we get into this cycle. The two different kingdoms that form, you've got Israel and you've got Judah, they each had 20 different kings over their history. So we have 40 kings, and over the northern kingdom, all 20 of them were considered evil and bad. All 20 The southern kingdom, they had 20 kings, and only eight of them were good, 12 of them were bad. These kings were driving people actually away from God. They were driving them to other gods, bringing in all these different idols and altars to worship, all these different gods. So we're seeing this cycle over and over and over again. And God actually uses these superpowers, these opponents to come in and actually act as warnings and punishment for their lack of faith in him in breaking the covenant with them. And so the northern kingdom of Israel gets sacked. It's gone. It's done. Assyria took it. So Judah's sitting there by itself and things are starting to get a little hot, right? We've got King Amon who builds temples to other gods. He's worshiping the same gods as his father, Manasseh, also a bad king. They've completely abandoned Yahweh. They've completely abandoned the worship of the God of Israel, the God of their people. And they were so bad, in fact, they were killed by their own servants. Amon was literally killed in his own house by his own servants for being a jerk. So they kill him. He gets buried. The common people find out who killed him, and they say, hey, we're going to kill you. Cycle continues. Until Amon's son, by the name of Josiah, became king. Now here's the deal. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. I have an eight-year-old in my house. <laughs> and I've been thinking about this one for the last couple of days. If she was in charge, it would be fun for like a day and a half. And then it would be terrifying because we would eat nothing but McDonald's and ice cream all day, every day. It would be so gross. But Josiah is eight years old. This is a little different. Most of the other kings were in their 20s. You got an eight-year-old coming in. Nothing says we're a superpower like being led by an eight-year-old. But there's something different about Josiah. You see, at the same time that Habakkuk is writing this letter, another famous prophet by the name of Jeremiah, he also is prophesying. He's writing and working and preaching. Josiah hears some of his teaching and is affected in his heart and says that Jeremiah, or Josiah, actually took to heart some of the things that he had heard from Jeremiah. And so at 26, Josiah dedicates his life to the Lord, and he decides, we need to fix up the temple After all these bad kings, my dad, my grandpa, his father, 
his father, his father. We need to do some work and we need to repair the temple. And so he starts spending money buying stone and wood and marble and all right, let's go. Let's fix up the temple. And this is how far they got in the temple. They were so far removed from following God that they legitimately lost the scroll of the law. The people of Israel lost the scroll because they were worshiping so many other gods. They literally lost it. And it wasn't until Josiah said, hey, we need to start fixing up the temple that the high priest found it. And the high priest brings this thing to Josiah and says, I don't know what this is. Probably not in a good spot at that point. He brings it to the king and he reads it. And it says that they were devastated. That they were so far removed from the law, from the thing that God had put into place is a promise, is a covenant with them. They were so far removed from it, they didn't even know what it said. They didn't know what it stood for. And so they read this thing and they're sitting under it and they're saying, oh my gosh. Look at how far we've fallen. And so Josiah takes this scroll and they continue reading it. And they read it over all of the people in their entire kingdom and it says that the kingdom was devastated. That they had a Passover meal, something that they had not had in a long time and that mass repentance happens. Like this is an Old Testament revival. And so Josiah starts clearing house He goes into all of the temples and he starts pulling out false gods and images of false gods and all of these altars to false gods and he's pulling out priests and priestesses to false gods. He just starts burning everything. He's like, we are the Lord's and this is who we are and this is where we're headed and he starts cleaning things out. Now the equivalent of this situation, this quote-unquote Old Testament revival. Like that happening here, man, it would be like the White House and Congress, right? You got every Democrat, every Republican, every Libertarian, everybody that thinks they know something saying, you know what, we're going to worship God. The Department of Education saying, you know what, we're going to worship God. The entertainment industry, Hollywood, music, porn, sports, same we're going to worship God. Agriculture, we're going to worship God. Imagine if literally everyone in our country got on their knees and said, we're going to worship God. That's what happens. This is a massive deal in their history. Now at the same time that Josiah is reigning, I said we've got these other superpowers going on. We've got a new pharaoh in Egypt by the name of Nico. Now, Nico reaches out to Josiah and says, hey, just want to let you know, I'm going to be bringing a bunch of my troops. We're going to come through Judah. We're headed up to meet with the Assyrians. And Josiah says, no, you're not. You're not coming through our land. And this enrages Nico. So Nico brings his troops anyway. And when Josiah sees it, he says, man, we got to do something about it. I can't tell him you can't come and then us not show up and just let him walk through. So he calls for his army. So now we have Egypt against people of Israel and Judah again. And it says that Josiah 
dressed up like one of the soldiers, and instead of standing up on top of a hill so we can see the battlefield, he had armor on and he fought alongside his men. And he was killed by the Egyptians. And so Nico says, here's the deal, I just took out your dad, so I'll put somebody else on the throne. So he takes one of Josiah's sons, Jehoahaz, and puts him on the throne. Jehoahaz was a moron, just like his grandpa and his great-grandpa. And he did horrible things and started taking everything Josiah had built and tearing it down. And then Pharaoh came back through three months later, took him off the throne and put his other brother on. And his other brother was an even bigger moron. Everything that Josiah had worked towards had been torn down. And 11 years after this takes place, the book of Habakkuk gets written. So I'm sorry for the history lesson, but I feel like we need to know where we're at in the story in order for this to make sense. Now, who is Habakkuk? Nobody really knows. (laughs) Check. Habakkuk, his name loosely translated means to embrace. And some commentators say, you know what? Habakkuk embraced God by calling out to him based on what he was seeing. And while he was embracing God, God embraced him. There's speculation. It's believed that Habakkuk was a musician, that he potentially played in the temple, that he led worship in the temple. It's believed that he could have been a Levite. That's all that we know about Habakkuk. So all this is going on and all of a sudden we get this written down conversation between Habakkuk and God where Habakkuk is just crying out in the wake of what he is seeing and experiencing. Because things were awesome with King Josiah. This thing that he had been praying for, that it would happen, that there would be revival, that people would come back to Yahweh, that they would obey the law, that sacrifices would be taking place, that order would be restored, that things would be good amongst the people horizontally and good vertically between them and God. And it's all fallen apart. And so in the beginning of Habakkuk, we see Habakkuk know that God is sovereign, that God is in control of all things and what he's experiencing in a day in and day out way is just not matching up to who God is. So we're going to jump into Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, right? This was a vision or an oracle that he saw. He literally saw himself having a conversation with God and wrote it down for us. Verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. In the face of everything that has happened, the moral decay of the people of Judah, the corruption and the unjust leadership of the kings and the priests, 
the violence in the war of the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Chaldeans, all of it. And Habakkuk throws the weight of what he's experiencing onto God. Right, like, God, I am, I'm seeing violence and I'm seeing injustice and I'm seeing wrongdoing and corruption and oppression and strife and conflict and you're doing nothing. The law, like this thing that you hold so dear, it's ineffective. And nothing seems to change. How many of you have ever struggled with something that God has done or the timing in which he has done it? Cool, at least I'm not alone this Sunday. (laughs) Like how are you supposed to maintain your faith as doubt is piling up and the world is falling apart around you? Like this is why Habakkuk matters to us. Right? We walk through the history and you're like, I don't really care. That was a cool story. Right? This is why this book matters to us. Because every single one of us is going to walk through experiences where we are trying to maintain our faith while doubt is building and things are corroding all around us. Where things that we once held dear to start to fade or fail us. Church, on the road to Christian maturity... We're all going to hit spots like this. Spots where you're thinking, God, what are you doing? Like, if you're good, if you're gracious, why is this happening? Like, what happens when you get punched in the soul? I will never forget August 16th, 2006. I was moving in to start my first year of Bible school. I'm literally paying the tuition bill when I get a phone call that Taylor, who is now my wife, was in a car accident. She got T-boned by a pickup doing 55. She had internal bleeding and she was in a coma. And I took my cool flip phone And I folded it shut, I put it in my pocket, and I stood there, and I thought, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? I'm finally doing what you've called me to. I'm here for you, and you're going to let this happen to me? Anybody been in that spot before? Cool, now I am the only one, all right? There we go. Thanksgiving this last year. I knew what was coming. I knew it, and it still caught me off guard when Jason Chenoweth died. God, what are you doing on Thanksgiving? A month ago, a month ago, we had a pretty big court hearing that's going to have a big impact on the little girl that's living in my house. A judge banged a gavel and said, you're no longer her mother to her biological mom. You know how gross that is? And you're talking to people and you're like, yeah, like termination of parental rights, it happened. 
And people are like, oh, that's awesome. And you're like, no, like that's not how it's supposed to be. I mean, imagine sitting in a room and a judge telling you, you are no longer related to somebody that you care for deeply, that you love deeply, regardless of the circumstances. That's not how it was supposed to be. And so I get word of this while I'm at woodworking school, and I'm just standing there with a chisel, and I'm like, yeah, this sucks. Right? Like, in order for us to move forward, in order for something good to come from this, this has to take place, but this is still broken. Because death comes before life. Every single one of us, I feel like I get to preach these messages all the time. Church, it may come in the loss of a loved one. It might come at the loss of a job. It might come when a marriage fails. It might come when your kid makes a really stupid decision. It might come as the result of somebody else's sin. It might come when you see tragic news. It might come at a medical diagnosis. But there are moments that have a way of causing us to call out. And in these moments, we have the choice to lean into God and learn more about his character and nature, or we can grow angry and bitter and allow ourselves to drown in doubt and fear. Because hardship has a way of exposing who we are in a way that nothing else can. I mean, when I got that phone call, I'm standing at Trinity International University, I'm on this phone call, and I'm hearing these words, and in that moment, I felt incredibly small. Now, I'm not very small, but in that moment, I felt minuscule. I had no control. I had no say. I was hours away. Like, I had nothing. But I had God. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do or really had available to me, I started praying to him. I don't know about you guys, but I've never been in a situation that has been really, really bad and started praying to myself. I haven't. Now, like, Craig, I pray that you would give doctors wisdom to heal. Never done that before. Why? Because I am not capable, but he is. It is in those moments that you understand how insignificant you are and how great he is. Here's the deal. God is not scared of pain. And if pain is a vessel that draws you to him, he will gladly do it all day long. Does that make him evil? No. Does that make him loving? Absolutely. See, we live in a culture that says pain is horrible and comfort is ultimate. And God says, no, I am ultimate and I will use pain to bring you to me. In these moments, you become aware of your position. And out of that overflow, out of how small you feel, comes worship. It does. A few years ago, my wife and I went to Niagara Falls. Anybody been to Niagara Falls? Okay, cool, I'm not alone again. 
We're doing well. Niagara Falls is incredibly loud, okay? Uh, I looked up this morning, because I like Google, right? 3,160 tons of water falls over Niagara Falls every second. That's a lot of baths. 3,160 tons of water falls every second at Niagara Falls. You literally start walking to it and the ground is vibrating. And you stand there, and there is just massive thunder, and there's this cloud sitting over it. And you're standing there, and you're like, this is awesome. You know what you aren't doing? Screaming, look at me, I'm awesome. Why? Because Niagara Falls is right there. You ever been to the Grand Canyon and heard a high school kid talking about how their football team made it to state? Uh Uh-uh. Nobody cares that you graduated magna cum laude. Right? Like, look at what is in front of you. This is why we vacation to places like the ocean and the mountains. Because in those places, we understand how insignificant and small we are and how powerful God is. Nobody's going to Kansas for vacation. I'm just ripping on states today. It's true. Who's like, I'm going to Kansas to run in a field? No, they're like, I have to drive through Kansas to get to Colorado. (laughs) Maybe we should go at night so I don't have to see Kansas while we're driving to Colorado. Am I right? (laughs) This summer, my family's going on a massive road trip, and we get to drive through Iowa. And if I did not have friends that lived in Iowa, I would not be excited about going to Iowa. Okay? (laughs) Get me to Glacier National Park, because there's something cool to look at. We go to places that are larger than us. And we go to places that are more powerful than us. Why? Because in those moments, you understand your position. And out of the overflow of how incredibly small you feel and how grand he feels comes worship. Now, there's something that needs to be said as we continue digging into Habakkuk moving forward, and it's this. Habakkuk takes place in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, the law, right? 614 rules and regulations and ways that people are to act with each other and with God. Today, in 2022, we live after Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. We live as a new covenant people. And the reason I bring this up is because, in light of a lot of current events, people turn on the news and they see shootings and bombings and floods and all this stuff, and they say, God is judging us. No, God's judgment was poured out on the cross of Christ. What we experience is not punitive. It is not God's punishment on us. That was poured out on the cross. And so as we read Habakkuk and we see God say, I am going to use Babylon. I am going to use these people that you think are absolutely horrible. Yeah, I'm actually going to use them against you. And we look in the old covenant and we're like, oh, snap, God, you are evil. Uh Uh-uh. Same God handling things in slightly different ways because his wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ, not on us. And that is called grace and mercy. Amen? 
So as we read through Habakkuk, we need to read it through the lens that Jesus is coming, that something better is coming, that instead of this cycle of broken judges and broken kings and broken everything, that Jesus is coming that he is the new king, that he is the better priest, that he is the better everything, that Jesus shows up and he fulfills the law, he lives out the law the way that nobody else could, and then he goes to the cross and he dies, taking the punishment that we deserve. So as we read through Habakkuk, it's easy to look at that and say, man, look at how evil things are and how broken things are and look at how evil things are today and how broken things are today and we're experiencing all of this because God is punishing us. No, you are minimizing the cross. Don't rob Jesus of what he did on the cross because you're having a bad day. Habakkuk is an amazing amazing telling of a conversation between a broken man and a holy God. And even though the punishment for our sins was poured out on Christ, we are still living in a sinful world dealing with the consequences of people's sin. And we're rubbing up against that every day. In your home, in your school, in your community, in our country, in our world. Which is why we need to be cross-driven people. We need to cling tightly to the cross, to what happened on the cross. And when those bad things come and we want to cry out, God, what are you doing? We can look at the cross and say, look at what you've done. Regardless of where you're at in your walk with Jesus, there will be incredibly high points and there will be incredibly low points. And Jesus told us it was going to be this way. What we have is hope that Jesus is coming back, that all things will be made new, that death will no longer affect us, sickness will no longer affect us, the things that we see in the news will no longer take place, that something better is coming, and we have hope in that. So even in your circumstances, we can find our hope in Jesus, what he's done and what he's doing. That is how we are to read through the book of Habakkuk. So this morning we looked at Habakkuk reaching out to God and saying, God, what are you doing? Next week we're actually going to see God respond to Habakkuk. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for dads, for fathers. Thank you that you are a father. That is our heavenly father, you are always present, always with us, always good, always loving. That even if we had a a broken relationship with an earthly father, we didn't even have one. I pray that you would fill that void that folks with hurt, that they would find healing in you as their father. I pray that you would continue lifting up men to be father figures to those that don't have a dad that we would step in the gap on their behalf, that we would love and lead well, and that ultimately we would point them to Jesus. Father, I pray for those that are missing their dad. Maybe he's passed away or can't be with them. Pray for comfort for them and peace for them. 
pray that they too would see you as their heavenly father that will never go away, never pass, never leave. Father, thank you for the book of Habakkuk. That this strange book of Habakkuk just calling out and just yelling at God that you are big enough to take it. That you want to hear that from us. That you want to love us in our struggles and in our hurt. And that you loved us enough to send your son to die on the cross in our place. The punishment was poured out on him and not us. And Father, I pray that every day we would live our lives understanding that we get nothing but grace upon grace upon grace from you. That we would be cross-driven people regardless of our circumstances. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, have a good Sunday.